Friends of God, we are in our church calendar in the final Sunday of the season that we call Epiphany. Epiphany is the season of manifestations, specifically manifestations of God surrounding the birth and ministry of Jesus. The season starts immediately after Christmas, or in some traditions with Christmas itself, which actually makes a lot of sense. A manifestation of God through a star in the night sky, pointing magi from other lands to the child Christ, Epiphany. Jesus' baptism, a manifestation of God through torn apart skies, a mighty voice, and descending spirit. Jesus' earthly ministry, a manifestation of God's presence through exorcisms and healings carried out by Jesus and even by those first disciples who Jesus gave special power to. The last few weeks during the season of Epiphany, we've been largely wrestling with manifestation stories from Mark chapter 1, which is a particularly long chapter. And now today we're skipping all the way to chapter 9, just more than halfway through the book of Mark. And we've skipped to tell the last and arguably the greatest manifestation story that occurred before Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem. After today, we're in a new season, the season of Lent. It starts on Wednesday with Ash Wednesday, where we'll walk with Jesus toward his suffering, death, and resurrection. That Holy Week salvation manifestation story that belongs totally in a class of its own. There's some debate about where the transfiguration happened. Some want it to have happened on Mount Hermon, a mountain 9,000 feet high, north of the Sea of Galilee, between modern-day Syria and Lebanon. I think people want this massive manifestation to have occurred in a majestic, massive place. Right? It belongs there. But this location seems unlikely to me. I think it happened on Mount Tabor, just an 1,800-foot-high rounded hill, pretty, but not Hermon west of the Sea of Galilee, and, and Galilee proper, because immediately before and after the Transfiguration, there are these stories of just regular crowds of people in Galilee interacting with Jesus and the disciples. The other reason Tabor, a small mountain, is a fine setting for me, is that I am not at all convinced that the Transfiguration of Jesus was a one-time event. We don't need to symbolize it with a specific, special, huge mountain because, well, this transfiguration thing could have happened regularly. We're told that Jesus was always slipping away to pray, and who knows what actually occurred when he did that. If he could do this once, be transformed from earthly to heavenly appearance and, and being, why not twice or on the daily? Maybe regular occurrences of connection with the voice of his divine parent and ancestral leaders, Moses and Elijah, gone 1,500 and 800 years respectively, was part of the regular spiritual life that fed Jesus Christ and prepared him for each day in ministry. Why wouldn't the one who tore open the skies at Jesus' baptism to shout out, you are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased, also say encouraging things regularly as loving parents are known to do? I don't just scream out for my kids on the first basketball game of the season. Every game, I'm thinking they're the best and celebrating every shot that goes in. What was unique, though, this time, was that Jesus specifically invited three key disciples to experience this grand manifestation, the transfiguration of himself, the presence of Elijah and Moses, and the voice of very God. It was like no other manifestation they'd experienced up until that point, and I would argue they don't experience anything quite like this after as well. Why did Jesus invite them? 
Why did he invite Peter and James and John at that moment in the ministry? You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have lots of similar stories that they tell and some unique stories that fall in each. And the timelines are all scrambled. And if you do Bible studies a lot, it's really annoying because it just leads to all these crazy complications. But all of those three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell the story of the transfiguration. And despite the many differences in the chronology of the stories, the transfiguration is found in the same location in each of the gospels. The transfiguration occurred just after Jesus was firstly rightly named Messiah by his disciples, which was also simultaneously an occasion for the disciples, especially Peter, to reveal their ignorance about what that title actually meant. In chapter 8, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Well, some say Moses and others Elijah. And Jesus says, how about you disciples? You've been with me. Who do you say that I am? And in 827, Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus immediately says, shh, don't tell anybody. And I bet they wondered why. And then he said, let me tell you what's going to happen to the Messiah. And he proceeded to tell them for the first time of the suffering that he was going to go through and endure in Jerusalem. He told them for the first time about the death he was going to die at the hands of the authorities. He told them for the first time that after that he'd rise up again. And we're told that Peter, the one who had just properly named him as Messiah, started rebuking him. That will never happen to you. And I, I guess Peter got so lost in the suffering and death part of the description that he, he couldn't think about the rising again part. Or maybe he cut Jesus off halfway through the sentence. Who knows? Because that part doesn't seem to have figured in this critique. And friends, Jesus rebuked him, and not politely. He snapped back, get behind me, Satan, to his lead disciple right there in public. And immediately Peter looked down in shame, tail between his legs. Your mind is not on divine things, but on human things, continues Jesus. After sharing a few more words with the 12 and with a gathering crowd about the high cost, the risk in discipleship, Jesus could see that Peter was still hanging his head, having been scolded so. And I bet it was a bit of a quiet week with those guys. I bet six days later, that's how the story starts, Peter was still a little touchy. But Jesus asked Peter, James, and John to come with him for a, a short trip up Mount Tabor. And they walked and talked on the way up the hill, and then we're not told how it occurred, but suddenly Jesus was transfigured before them. Did he say, wait here, give me a little space, something's about to happen, and you're going to want some distance? Or did he just suddenly transform like something out of a Marvel movie, totally different than he'd appeared a second earlier? It's totally unclear. It just says he was transfigured before them and was wearing ridiculously bright, shining clothes, the kind of clothing typical of angels and heavenly sent beings found in apocalyptic writing. Jesus is now revealed as a divine figure of sorts rather than as a normal human figure. And suddenly there was Elijah and Moses. Did they have name tags or, or did they greet each other by name? Moses, bro, how you doing? I mean, I can hear the disciples whispering to each other, yeah, there's proof that he's not Moses and Elijah because they're here with him. Peter had regained his mojo by this point, and he said out loud, let's build some booths for you three. And the very next line says, for they did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And I find that funny. Peter, who's just been scolded, is now doesn't know what to say, but has already said something. He blurts it out. Peter, maybe try silence next time. 
But it turns out that Peter's words were not totally uninformed. In fact, they weren't uninformed at all. In Zechariah 14 and in extra-biblical texts from the first century, the day of the Lord was said to be expected during Sukkot, the festival of the booths. And you know the tents that our Jewish friends set up all around Highland Park in the fall. Yep, the Messiah was supposed to come during that holiday, was the belief. And by the first century, it was not just a harvest festival and a time to celebrate God giving the, um, giving the crops, but it was also a time to celebrate the Torah given to Moses on the mountain. Peter spoke because he was informed. This must be the day of the Lord, and we've got to build booths. But as before, he was informed and also uninformed. That passage from Zechariah speaks of a strong and mighty warrior Messiah whose arrival includes conquering and shedding the blood of enemies. And as soon as the word about the booths has gotten out of his mouth, a huge cloud covered them on the mountain and the voice of God boomed from the sky. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. It was, if you will, Peter's second rebuke in a week. You know, Jesus had been rebuked by you know, Jesus getting the Messiah thing a little wrong. And now God tells Peter, stop it with the booth thing and with all the thought that somehow a messianic return is going to be a conquering event. Just listen to what my Messiah is telling you. It can be thought of as two rebukes of Peter, but maybe it's better to call it two loving reminders to Peter. One from Jesus and one from Creator God. Peter is reminded that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is indeed infiltrating the world. And he's reminded to let Christ define what that infiltration, what that intervention will look like in the world. Listen to him. Be shaped by him. Christ is bringing heaven now. Friends, I want to suggest that you already do regularly take the hike that Peter, James, and John took up Mount Tabor. Jesus did not leave you with the other nine and with the crowds at the bottom of the hill. Christ chooses you for the hike. The hike happens whenever you step into the sanctuary of RCHP on a Sunday. It's more like Tabor than Herman, for sure. But do you realize it as such? When you step into this place and let yourself be addressed by the voice of God who says to you, grace to you and peace, as Pastor Stephanie said today, and when the stories of Christ and the promises of the Holy Spirit that enter your life wash over you, you are visiting a transfiguration station. And it's not just that you get to see Christ transfigured. It's not just that you have a chance to connect the dots between the voice of Almighty God and the person of Jesus and the great prophets of old whom God also spoke through. It's also that you, yes, you, start to wear a bit of transfiguration yourself. As the Spirit of God enters you and the risen, transfigured Christ guides you, it's like you've received a blood transfusion. Your blood and apocalyptic inbreaking holy blood are mixed all together. You leave here with an infusion of power, power not for conquest, but for love, an infusion of power not for violence, but for loving confrontation, power not for war, but for radical peace and speaking of peace, power to cast out, power to heal, power to stick with it when the challenges seem impossible, power to go the distance, power to overcome fear, power to forgive and be forgiven. This is real power from the transfiguration. Jesus and his three disciples, they they went back down the mountain. He asked them to keep quiet about what they'd experienced until after his death and resurrection. Like he said, be quiet about my title, Messiah, till we get, this, get, this, you know, the, get the press release a little, a little clearer. He answered a few of their particular religious questions while they walked. And then they reached the trailhead, which was on the edge of a town, and, and crowds were gathered there. 
There was arguing going on among disciples and scribes from the local synagogue. We're not told what they were arguing about, but it was probably related to a failed exorcism. A man stepped forward as Jesus was asking, what are you arguing about over there? And a man stepped forward and said, look, I brought my son who's suffering from severe seizures and the disciples haven't been able to cast it out. So maybe the disciples and scribes were arguing about the failure to cast out or about clean and unclean questions or questions about righteousness under the law. And all of this, this bickering, the fact that a child was still there and possessed by a demon, it just left Jesus unbelievably frustrated. And he yelled out, you faithless generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with this shenanigans? Bring him to me. And Jesus worked with this child and his father until the spirit was cast out from the child and he went limp as the condition left him. And Jesus lifted him up. He was freed from what had bound him. And the disciples who had struggled so, and remember, it was the ones who hadn't gone up the mountain, right? They asked, why couldn't we do that? And Jesus responded saying, this kind can only be driven out through prayer. And we're not told that the disciples said, ah, okay, I understand now. And I don't understand. And Jesus doesn't give any further explanation to them. But I bet that Peter and James and John actually did understand. They knew why Jesus had the power to do something that the rest couldn't do yet. He was radically filled up by his prayerful encounter up on the mountain with Almighty God and Elijah and Moses. He was down the hill now, but the apocalyptic identity, though not on display in glowing, dazzling garments, was worn on his sleeve in his absolute result, resolute trust that God's power was in him to do all things. And I bet the three disciples who'd been up there wished he'd invited them to be part of that difficult exorcism and healing because they had confidence and courage now and the power to stay at it in response to God's leading. Friends, as, as people who follow the resurrected Christ and who have been offered the Holy Spirit, I invite you firstly to keep coming to this transfiguration station. Keep coming here to get filled up again in the presence of Christ's apocalyptic power, receiving Christ's invitation to receive that power into yourselves as well. Theologian Elizabeth Schutzler Fiorenza, in her commentary on the book of Revelation, speaks of apocalyptic praxis, world-shattering works and actions, if you will. Visions that move us out of the normal into the paranormal, you see, are not mere visual spectacles, but pictures that move toward action. Visions are pictures that move toward action. Jesus brought his disciples up there for a purpose, that they might be moved toward proper action in response to a God who is breaking into the world through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Friends, I imagine God is super disappointed right now. Disappointed that right now, today, at the bottom of the strip of land that is Gaza, in Rafah, the last place of refuge, there are 1.5 million people huddled with nearly a million of them in tents, and there's now beginning a ground invasion with unimaginable devastation going on. God was also disappointed on October 7th when violence won the day. God's been disappointed for decades about unresolved, unbelievable injustice. But God's really disappointed right now. I imagine God and Christ look down in disgust right now. My disciples and various scribes and politicians are not stopping this war. How much longer must I tolerate the behavior of this generation? Greed, 
larger plans of evil by powerful leaders of multiple nations that don't show all their cards and who endlessly manipulate the truth. It's all there, and in the middle of it, little children dying by the tens of thousands in horrifying ways and hostages on both sides still not released. The whole thing is such an abomination. Friends, if this transfiguration station is worth anything, then we cannot come to the bottom of the mountain and fail to engage in creative and daring efforts to heal, to cast out evil, and to risk speaking truth regarding this war. We need to bring apocalyptic, peaceful resistance in the way of Jesus Christ to our nation and to all who keep dropping bombs and firing guns. And friends, if the Transfiguration Station is worth anything, then we need to come to the bottom of the mountain and ask why, in the middle of this war, there are record numbers being reached on Wall Street, with the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 passing 5,000, like it's out of control. Apocalyptic resistance means coming to the bottom of the mountain and challenging the integrity of a war economy, finding ways to use apocalyptic power to pressure and question and raise red flags about our economy. And friends, if the Transfiguration Station is worth anything, then we need to come to the bottom of the mountain and care about victims of war, including soldiers from communities made up primarily of America's most poor. Yes, there is dignity in representing your country, but so often those called to fight, even when the decision of the nation seems so not right, are those whose enlistment was primarily a way out of poverty, poverty caused by the same nation whose destruction they are now asked to defend. Let us watch carefully as American soldiers start dying around the Red Sea, whose lives, whose American lives are expendable, even as our decisions already make it clear who is expendable globally. Friends, if this transfiguration station is worth anything, then we need to stand up against the kind of McCarthyism that's finding its way all too quickly into universities and communities, including our own and our own Rutgers University. The kind of anti-free speech that scares so many people out of prophesying. The kind of fear that allowed the Red Scare and allowed the war in Vietnam to go on for so long. A commentator I found this week reminded me of a book that had really moved me when I was in college, and it really opened up my faith. It's the book Teaching a Stone to Talk by Annie Dillard. Annie Dillard says, does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke when we claim the story of our faith? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. Friends, as you come down from Mount Tabor today and engage the world, consider what kind of safety gear you will need. You have encountered the transfigured Christ, so watch out, for you are not the same. And Christ needs the new you for right now. And Christ needs you new again and again with every visit to the transfiguration station. You can cast out so much that's wrong in the world, dear friends. You can introduce the day of the Lord, for Christ has already introduced it. May none of us taste death before declaring that the kingdom of God is indeed at hand. Amen.